Welcome to the Gods the Ghost Volleyball Podcast and your host, Scott Bemke. Today's podcast features part two of our interview with George Stepanoff. Enjoy. It's interesting that you say that because when I interviewed Al Skates and he coached UCLA for 50 years, had 19 NCAA titles and coached everyone from Karch Karai to Ricky Ludes to Sinjin Smith to Reed Sunahara. Doug Partee, Mike Storm and Norman, Jim Mangus, Tom Schmall, so you can go down the line. And when I asked him who the hardest hitter was that he ever had there, he didn't hesitate. He goes, Ernie Sawara. (laughs) And I thought that spoke volumes. And I'm like, gosh, I wish I had video footage or a picture. And he goes, I have a picture of, of Ernie hitting a ball. And the ball is compacted down to about a third of the size that it normally is. And I'm like, find it, Coach Skates. <laughs> He's like, all right, I'll look through my millions of, uh, of uh, treasure uh, chest uh, stuff that he has in his, his memories that he has at his, uh, his man cave there, I'm sure, in Encino. But that was pretty neat to hear. And Von Hagen said that no one hit the ball harder than Suora. Yeah, that's, that's something I thought I was one of the only guys that really remembered that because other people, uh, when I've heard them say something, it's like Tom Shabalas or... Bergman. Uh, Hank, Hank Bergman, yeah. yeah. And none of them ever mentioned uh, Ernie Sawara. Yeah, I know indoors, he... Uh... He was, there was a rumor that he played like a doubles indoor tournament against a guy and a girl, and the girl blocked him twice, and on the third hit, uh, he broke her arm. Did you ever hear that story? No. Yeah, it's in Sands of Time from Artie Kuvion, which his books are awesome to read. It's, uh... Yeah, he skipped me, uh, sent sent me all his books, because, uh, he came to my house uh, once to because they told him I had a whole lot of information about uh, volleyball throughout the years so he came down to my house one day and spent the whole day going through my all my uh, paperwork from all the tournaments and everything for his books that he wrote so he he just kept sending me any of the new books that he wrote so I'd have them all. Yep, good stuff. What about uh, Henry Bergman? Uh, I don't really know much about him uh, because uh, I played against him a couple of times and he, he hit a 
crap out of the ball. <laughs> yeah, I know Lang says uh, he and Rundle in 68 were the best team he ever competed against. And in my opinion, when Lang gives someone a compliment, which probably never happens, it's like getting a call from Ed McMahon that you won the lottery. Take it to heart. <laughs> but he said uh, Henry was one of them, along with like Rich Raffaro and a handful of other guys. But uh, yeah. uh, speaking yeah, of. Those guys were from Santa Barbara. <laughs> I, I love that Santa Barbara crew. Don Shaw. Yeah. John Lee. Yeah. Raffaro. Bob Van Wagner. Crank. Yeah. Oh, he's been, like, the nicest guy sending me photos. Yeah, he took a lot of photos during that time, yeah. Yep, and he's still with us and kicking ass and taking names. Yeah. Riffero told me how Bob used to come to a restaurant in Santa Barbara that he worked at called Jasper's. And he'd take all those great photos, and Riffero would hook him up with a few cocktails, and he said, uh, Scott... Be thankful you never had to get a handshake from Van Wagner. It would have crushed your hand. <laughs> I'm glad I never did. <laughs> hey, some of the other uh, impressive hitters that I remember is, you know, like, uh, you know, we already mentioned Hank Bergman and then Tom Shamalis, you know. But uh, Kaj Karai, I think he was really impressive uh he didn't hit the ball that hard but he he knew where to hit it <laughs> you know he was always always putting the ball on the sand of the other team without getting dug you know he was so good at that and then there was another player from here down here in san diego was pat powers he oh, really smacked the ball yeah. yeah i remember i used to go back to the nationals and uh, they told me about him when he was in college, and they said, this guy hits the ball from the back row, you know, and he was really good. And so one time I was playing uh, against him in Mission Beach, and I took a time out after he was bombing the ball, and I, I had my, I rode my bike there that day, and I took my helmet off. <laughs> I said, okay, okay, Pat, I'm ready. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I fell in love with this sport in 88 as a 16-year-old kid watching Powers and Stevenson play at the ABP Milwaukee Open against Hovland and Dodd, huh. and Powers was wearing, like, Cox Sportif biker shorts and just hitting <laughs> balls that I was just, like... It reminded me of that scene in Animal House where Bluto takes the guitar and smashes it against the wall. <laughs> so, so, sorry. <laughs> Probably time for you to move on to a new sport because you can never do this. And there, in Powers played in a USVVA Nationals tournament at Ball State. Did you ever hear this story? No, I don't think so. I'll send you the picture. Well, during warm-ups, that field house at Ball State is, the roof is about as high as the UCLA Poly Pavilion scoreboard was before they did the renovation. And uh, during warm-ups that year, Powers, I think, was at USC or between 
seasons at USC, and he hit a hit a ball that hit the the field house roof. And it's never been done before or never been done after. And a lot of the guys that I know... He hit the the ball and it hit the ground and then bounced it. Yeah, he bounced it so hard, so straight down and so straight up that it hit the roof of the Ball State Fieldhouse. And I grew up playing against some guys that were way better than me, so don't confuse me with that. Like Scott Oath and Todd Reimer and Paul Baxter that played at Ball State. And they always practiced in that gym. And they're like, we heard that Powers hit this ball like that back in like the late 70s. Is that true? (laughs) And uh, lo and behold, I asked Powers about it one time. And he's a pretty modest guy. And he goes, Bemke, it's a true story. He goes, "Uh, it was a career hit. He goes, we won the the warm-ups. We won the tournament. And we won the after party. Any questions? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, PP, you are the man. Yeah. So yeah, I yeah. believe it with PP. Well, we talked. Uh, that's your five uh, most impressive hitters you ever saw. What about best diggers? I know you mentioned Lang. Does he? He still gets yeah. your number one vote over uh, Selznick and Holtzman. Yeah, yeah, Lang and and Bernie Holtzman, but. There was another team at that time named Higer and Kaplan. And they were two little guys. And uh, that's all they did. Their, their whole game was defense. Uh, there could only be a couple of points scored in the game, and both of them would be covered with sand from head to toe. <laughs> <laughs> they, were so, they were really exciting to watch. And... A lot of times, uh, they ended up playing against the number one seed, and I had was up there with some guys from San Diego, and the they guy didn't know who they were, and he says, oh, who are these guys? What a joke, going to play against the first seed. And I says, well, for a joke, I says, I'll bet you they beat the first seed. He was, oh, no. And, and they did. They knocked them off. That was at Corona. <laughs> Who else was really good? Oh, uh, those were the the guys that were the best diggers that I could, that I remember. Uh, some of the best teams uh, were Selznick and Holson, uh, Lang and Von Hagen, uh, Sinjin and Karch, uh, Dodd and Hovland. Uh, and Von Hagen uh, with whoever he played with. <laughs> yeah, he carried a lot of great people to tournaments. That's pretty neat. Left and right side. Yep. What are your thoughts on the sport today and the rule changes to the short court and rally scoring, George? Oh, well, side out versus rally scoring. Well, the big difference between side-out and rally scoring is that with side-out, you had a better chance to make a comeback if you were behind. Uh, with rally scoring, when one team gets ahead by several points, it's very difficult for the losing team to make the comeback. With side-out scoring, usually the better team usually prevailed. With rally scoring, I think there's way more upsets. <laughs> 
if you eliminate offensive mistakes than the other team, you usually win. And if you dug some balls, that was that was just plain gravy if you dug balls. Uh, now, defense is more important than rally scoring. With side-out ball, you had, you had more time to take it easy uh, because the only way the other team could make any points is when they serve. So if you served the ball and your partner dug the ball and you decided it was too far, waste your energy to go after it, and you just let it go, and then you you waited until you, they served you again, then you, you put the ball away and no, nobody got any points. Uh, just as you get the ball back with your strong offense. Uh, so with rally scoring now, you have to go hard on defense and uh, or else you lose a point. Uh, with rally scoring, the games are much shorter, and you do not have to have the endurance you needed with side-out scoring. Uh, I know many of the side-out matches went on for hours. And that mental toughness to just grind it out, like, I'd rather die than you beat me. <laughs> In the old days with side-out ball, hardly anybody blocked, and they usually depended on digging. Now with the short court and rally scoring, one person's blocking, and there's less spiking and digging, and there's more shooting and chasing the ball down now. You served as tournament director for the San Diego area tournaments from 58 to 2016. Tell us how you first landed that position, what the keys were for running a successful tournament. And I know you pointed that out to me when I sent you my questions and I misnumbered them and you caught that, which told me how good you are at what you did. <laughs> and what some of your most memorable moments were serving in that role. I mean, you saw Bernie, you saw Gene, you saw O'Hara, you saw Bright, you saw Von Hagen, you saw Lang, Mangus, Lee, Fishburn, Selznick. Sinjin, Randy, Hob, Dodd, you saw all the best. So, remembrances of that, George Stepanoff. All right. Well, you know, in, uh, in San Diego, I don't know when uh, two-man volleyball started, uh, but I had the perpetual trophy for the tournament that started in 1949. And uh, it's still going. I've kept it alive. And we have the winners on it since 1949. It's the oldest perpetual trophy in the world, and it's still going on. Do you have any extras laying around the house that I could pay for? I'll cash up my 401k for it. (laughs) It it is shown in many of the photos and magazines with the winners holding them up over their head where they won the tournament in San Diego. Like the Stanley Cup. Over their head. Pardon? Like the Stanley Cup for the uh, NHL. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know of any tournament that's been going on longer than that, even though I know volleyball's been going on a lot longer than that. Uh, but when I started uh, working with tournaments in San Diego, uh, we only had the San Diego Open. And uh, there I started, it was in Mission Beach. Uh, I just was helping another player named Bob Mann uh, put it on. At first, the tournaments were put on by 
you know, word of mouth. And the, that's when they knew the tournaments were happening. Right. Uh, then someone said that someone in Santa Monica Rec Center was going to have a meeting with people that run tournaments in their cities. So I went up to that meeting to get a date for our tournament in San Diego. You know, in the past, sometimes people didn't know that someone else from another city was going to run a tournament at the same time. So that's why the meeting was called, so the, the tournaments were not conflicting. So I volunteered and went up there and scheduled our tourney. The Santa Monica Park and Rec Center volunteered to coordinate this and put out a schedule. The schedule was just a small tablet, two and a half by seven inches, with all the tournaments on them at the time and the phone numbers of the tournament players so the people could call and enter the tournaments. That's that's how I started running tournaments, and that was in Mission Beach and probably in the latter 50s and 60s and... Well, I've been doing it for 50 years. So. Amazing. And Chris Brown, who's been a really good guy to me and hooked me up with Von Hagen and Lang, and I first emailed them, and um, I didn't realize that Von Hagen doesn't get close to a computer, and I was, uh, I felt like the how I did in high school when I asked a girl out and she never got back to me. And then I realized later that Von Hagen doesn't get close to a computer, and that's why he didn't reply. <laughs> uh, and Lang replied back to me, and I got to talk to him. Um, but nonetheless, uh, Chris Brown uh, says that you were the man that made the CBVA Hall of Fame and and also the uh, rule book, what it is today. So that's a pretty neat accolade to have uh, on your resume, George. Just well, to, you know, just to uh, say. Uh, they they did have a rule a rule book then, and then uh, one tournament meeting uh, they had that on the agenda. Uh, go over the rule book for any changes. And so I went over them from each rule, each and every rule, and I made a number of changes in a lot of the rules. And, and uh, I know some of the tournament directors there were, they were expecting this was only gonna take a short time. And, and so I took a long time uh, rewriting most of the book, yeah. but. But there, there was already one that I just uh, upgraded it. I, that reminds me of another time I was playing uh, in a six-man tournament up in L.A. someplace, and uh, a ball hit the uh, the net on the outside of the antenna, and the other team played it. And I said, "Stop! Hold it! That's that's out!" And then. Uh, they said, what? They asked the guy that was reffing and says, what's, he played it off the net. And, and I says, yeah, but it's out of play. And so they said, well, we'll get the tournament director. So he went and got the tournament director. And the tournament director happened to be one of the beach tournament directors. And he was running that 
six-man tournament, and the, the guy explained to him what happened, and he says, "What? What do you? What's the rule on that?" Had the, this tournament director there, the six-man, said, "Oh, whatever he said, he pointed to me. He says he's the one that wrote the rules." <laughs> <laughs> That's got to be a pretty good feeling. Yeah, I, I give Chris Brown credit. He um, he's carried the torch well as the president of that CBVA Hall of Fame and and doing stuff the right way with stuff. So uh, he's been a, a good guy to me, and he he's the one that got me in touch with you, even though you might not be happy with that. But because uh, <laughs> I bugged you so much. Because yeah. <laughs> I bugged you so much, but he goes, nobody knows the history of the sport as well as is uh, George Stepanoff, and he was right. So I'm blown away tonight that I got to interview you tonight, and this is going to be a good thing for you, Derek, and uh, your your five grandkids in the history of the sport to remember these great players from your viewpoint, because you're one of the few people that saw them. All right, next question uh, is a tournament director, and I know this is going to be a tough one, so uh, just be honest. Who were some of the easiest players to work with during tournaments, and who were the ones that were a freaking nightmare? <laughs> okay, let me look at my pages. Memorable, memorable moments. Yeah, whatever you want to talk about. Well, with our uh, two-day tournaments and side-out uh, ball, many of the tournament directors had a hard time finishing before dark or even finishing at all on Sunday. Uh, I may be one of the few tournament directors that managed to finish all my tournaments on time. Uh, this leads me to a situation I remember happening in one of San Diego Opens. It was a Jose Cuervo tournament with prize money. We used to play uh, games 2 out of 3 to 11 in the winner's bracket and 1 to 15 in the loser's. And as I was watching my, my watch and observing where we were in each round, I decided that the next round, uh, I'd better make some changes. So I announced that the next round in the winner's bracket was going to be 1 game to 15. This was the number one seed and the number five seed got playing against each other next. While they were out there playing, the sponsor said to me, I think they're still playing two out of three to 11. So I went down there and they had the court and I asked, hey, what was the score? And they said, eight to six. I said, remember what I had said, this round is one game to 15. They said, no. We're playing two out of three to 11. And I explained to him that in order to finish the tournament, I have to change it to one game to 15. They said, well, they couldn't do it now because uh, they were changing sides on every four points. And I said, I don't care if you never change sides. The game is one to 15. And if, if you don't, I will throw both of you out of the tourney. And it's, so then they complied. They played one game to 15. You had to put the smack down, Stepanoff. 
Yeah. And they listened yeah. to you and they respected you. Well, I don't know whether they respected me, but I think they knew I would have threw them out of the tournament. <laughs> <laughs> That's classic. And then, uh, was were there any memorable uh, finals that you just look back on and over my career that really I was thankful and grateful that I got to watch that because it was volleyball at its best? Yeah, I... I just can't uh, think of any right now, you know, that was so memorable down here. But what about uh, the best players then that you uh, are the, who are some of the easiest players to be the tournament director for? Okay. And who are some of the yeah, ones well, that you, you know just what? went, they need to babysit or not me? Yeah. Well, <laughs> most of the players, they were really good to work with. Uh, but, uh, you know, a strange phenomenon came over some of them as they got better and they progressed from average player to a top-notch player. Uh, some of them started to get an air about them. Like, somehow, now, they they just became smarter than they used to be. Yeah. Some of them would call late on Friday night after I had already completed the CD and wrote all the names on the board with grease pen, pencil. And... They knew better, but they thought they were special. Then I had to go ahead and erase most of the board and reseed the tournament. Sometimes some of the top seeds would not show up on time uh, in the morning, so I had to reseed the, the board again. And then they would show up late, and I had to reseed it back again. And who were the you biggest know? culprits? And, oh, uh, it seemed like. That, that would happen, you know, uh, maybe with one or two teams in a tournament, but it didn't happen very often, maybe because they remember I, I put my foot down on that. <laughs> now, now, some of the tournament people that were difficult, <laughs> uh, they were what I call a tournament director's nightmare. <laughs> uh, one of them was uh, Steve Obradovich no way <laughs> he was always, no way he was always complaining about something <laughs> like not enough hot chicks around Beach the court when he played or uh, one time we had uh, in the Ocean Beach Pro Tournament he finally made it Obradovich made it to the main court and with a crowd of about 10,000 people watching, he yelled out at me, he says, Step it off! I need the ball to warm up with. And, and I was on stage at the time with the sponsors, and I had the microphone, and the sponsors told me, they gave all the best players new volleyballs at the first of the year so they could bring them with them and warm up. So I told them, sponsors just told me at the first of the season, they gave out volleyballs to all the best players. Then he yelled back at me and he says, well, I didn't get any. <laughs> then I waited a second with all the crowd watching and listening. And I said, well, figure it out. <laughs> and the crowd went wild laughing at that. It gave him back a taste of his own medicine. Yeah. Who was he playing with, Hooper? Yeah, I 
don't remember now, uh, but, you know, I've had some run-ins with them before saying that uh, you gotta, you're up now up on court one, and, and then court three was the main court, and, uh, and I called them up and they didn't show up. And so I said, this is the second call, you guys are up on court one, and then I looked over, they were still sitting under umbrellas. <clears throat> and I says, last call for O'Bradridge and his partners. You're up on court one. And then they said, oh, the, the game's almost over on the main court. Uh, we'd like to wait and play on that. And I says, no, you're not going to play on that. Uh, Right now, I'm going to give you uh, deduct a point a minute in your game, and if uh, both teams are down, then the score of the game is going to be less by one a point every minute. And if one team shows up, they'll be beating the other team one point a minute. <laughs> so finally, they drudged off down to the number that that court I assigned them to. <laughs> but that's what they would do, you know, drag their heels. They didn't care about whether the tournament was going to finish on time or anything. They just wanted what they wanted. Did you pass that knowledge on to Matt Gage when he took over the AVP? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but, you know, one time the, uh, the sponsors of the tournament said, uh, uh, I'm going to bring Matt Gage down to the tournament uh, uh, as your assistant because I wanted him to see how you run the tournament and everything. And uh, he, he's going to be your assistant. So I remember Matt Gage came to one of our CBVA meetings where we had all the directors. And I told him that story. I says, yeah, um, Matt, now the the tournament director for the AVP, and I says, he got to start down at San Diego, and I, he was there to see how to run a tournament for me. And Dad says, yeah, and I'm still trying to figure out how to forget all of those things. <laughs> <laughs> I just texted Matt, or emailed Matt Gage about this, and I love that guy to death, because he's like, he's the epitome of just poise, and he never says a bad word about anyone, and he was amazing. I didn't realize how good of a player that Matt Gage was because I grew up yeah. in the late 80s and learned the sport at 1688 when he was tournament director. And I learned more about how good he was as a player when I interviewed him and talked to all the other legendary players, including Von Hagen and everyone. And the guy's a class act, and he carried the torch well, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. Besides uh, OB, who else was a nightmare to deal with? Well, they, they weren't nightmares, but some of them, you know, would throw a wrench into things once in a while. You know, and see the, the guy from Santa Barbara, the blonde guy. What year? I don't, I don't remember what year, but I mean, he used to come down to the tournaments in... Uh, in Astero Beach when I was running them down there. And uh, 
he he ended up uh, smacking a girl in the face at, at the, while he was refing a match, and <laughs> he was just. He was on the Santa Barbara uh, volleyball team, or he was from Santa Barbara. He he played on the six man team. He also played two man. He was one of the top players. For Kenny, uh, for Santa Barbara back in the day in the 70s or 80s? Yeah, I, I, I think it was probably in the 70s. I'll have to reach out to... Hooper, yeah, Hooper. Oh, Ho yeah. good old Hooper. Oh, gosh, he's he's uh, he was a piece of uh, a force of nature. <laughs> what did Hooper do? What's your best Hooper story? Well... Like I said, uh, down at Astero Beach, he, he was there reffing a game, and some girl said she didn't like the way he was reffing, and he, he decked her. <laughs> Smacked her in the face. Oh, my goodness. Bob Clem uh, used to be roommates with him. And uh, one of my favorite stories that uh, Clem told me when he was running the uh, chart house up in Santa Barbara, he let... He lived with Hooper, and he let Hooper borrow his BMW one day, and Hooper like put his um, surfboard in the back of the car and hung the other half out through the window, and then he drove it into like a a bridge and broke off half of his surfboard and oh. trashed the bridge, and uh, uh, you know then you didn't have cell phones, and uh, Clem was like, "Jeez, uh, where's where's my roommate, Hooper?" Lo and behold, Clem had to take a cab to, to work because he had to run uh, the chart house. And later that night, Gary came by and said, Yeah, that fucking car, it, it broke my surfboard. <laughs> I just thought that was one of the funniest stories ever. That's that's a classic Cooper story for you. So it wasn't just you, it was roommates. I can only imagine what Hooper's dad thought of uh, Hooper as a kid growing up. Oh my gosh. Probably uh, reminds me a bit of my own parents, but that's a different story. Let's see here. Next question is, uh, who are the best uh, men's beach players that you ever saw? And then we'll get into the uh, best women's players that you ever saw, George. Okay. Well, I just go back and see. I got about 10 of them I've put down here that I think were the best players that I ever saw. Okay. And one, one was Gene Selznick, two, Ron Von Hagen, three, Ron Lang, four, Karch Karai, five, Singin' Smith, Singin' Smith. I called him Singin' Smith the first time he played in my tournament. Yeah. Uh, Mike O'Hara, Mike Bright, Jim Bingus, and Greg Lee, and Randy Stoklos. I think those were the top players during those times that I can remember. On the men's side, and you know what? I don't think anyone would argue with you on all those. Mingus was also one of those guys, like you mentioned about uh, Karch, where he wasn't the hardest hitter, but he could put the ball anywhere that he wanted anytime with a hit with a shot uh impeccable uh placement that he was like a pitcher that had 
unbelievable control. No best pitch, but had all the pitches in the uh, book and would throw them all over the plate. Is that a pretty good analogy for him? Yeah. Well, you know, out of those guys I mentioned, they were really out. Some of them were really outstanding in six man as well. You know, Gene Celtic, Michael Hera, and Karch Karai. They're world known in both indoor and outdoor. What about on the women's side? Well, the women, I got uh, Kathy Gregory, Nina Mathis. Mary Jo Pepler, Sharky Zung, Jean Brunicardi, Mickey McFadden, Jeanette Latrell, and Liz Nesakayan. Yeah, the Flying Nesakayan. She was a Sam Ohio graduate. Yeah, well, she played <coughs> in a lot of my uh, <coughs> doubles tournaments down here. <coughs> and, uh, she was a uh, really a great player. Yeah, I heard Jean Brunicardi, you know, your Steno's wife, that's a tough gig all in and of itself, but she was the uh, gazelle. I heard she was set the precedent for women's volleyball like Jean did almost. Well, you know, a long time ago, <coughs> uh, we used to just have, you know, we called them open tournaments, and in our open tournaments then, we didn't say men or women. We just said they're open tournaments. And so... Uh, didn't they have to play on the men's nets, too, back she, then? She played in the tournaments in the men's tournaments. Yeah. <laughs> with, with Steno. <laughs> oh, gosh. I know I didn't ask you about Steno, but was he a piece of work to be around? Uh, yeah, he, he was another guy that, uh, that I tried to... Me and him bandered around and had fun together at tournaments. And yeah, I, I remember one time in the San Diego Open, and I was going to be going to have to play against him. And uh, we says, uh, "Well, how are we going to decide?" And I said, "Well, we'll just roll the ball to the line over there, and uh, whoever's the closest gets to choose uh, whether they serve or." Or side, and he said, "Okay." So he rolled the ball. And he ended up about a foot from the line. Uh, yeah, that I rolled the ball, and it ended up laying on top of the line. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he said, "Oh man!" And, and, and then I says, "Well, Stello, uh, figure this out." Uh, that's the way the game's going to go. <laughs> <laughs> and just like normal, you predicted where he was, where yeah, it was going to go. Yeah, that you know, there's a lot of psychology in the beach game volleyball, and you know, I was at, thinking about writing a book one time of what are all the elements in volleyball. You know, passing, setting, spiking shooting, defense, and then I thought, oh, there's another main point, and it's the psychological part, where you, you, the Kathy Gregory part, if you will. Yeah, 
yeah, you know, and, and I think that happened several times in close matches that I played that I had what I used to call is I learned how to crack the eggshell, you know, <laughs> and when you crack the eggshell, all, everything runs out. So that you just break whatever the best part of their game is and take it away from them, and then they don't play as well anymore. And there was certain, everyone else you could do that to, except for Von Hagen, Lang. I think, I didn't see Von Hagen and Lang, but I heard you couldn't crack them. Uh, I heard, uh, well, I saw Sinjin. Sinjin, you couldn't crack that. Lang was the master at at, at setting the psychological game in motion. (laughs) But I didn't see Von Hagen ever do that. He just kept playing so strong that, after a while, he beat everybody anyway. He didn't have to go do anything extra psychologically. Do, was, do you recall a restaurant in the San Diego area called uh, either the Chuck Wagon or called Mother's? Well, we had a Chuck Wagon down here. Okay, All right, I'm going to tell you a quick story about this that Von Hagen and Stano and Gene all went down there to play in one of your tournaments. And um, Boardwell was there in uh, Erickson, I believe, and they all went out for dinner one night at the Chuck Wagon, which is an all-you-can-eat, right? Yeah. And uh, Steno was eating, and they were all eating, and they just, for you know, young volleyball players screwing around, decided to take all that free butter that was on the table, and they went out and rubbed it all over Steno's windows in the parking lot because he drove. And Boardwell, and Boardwell told me this story. Boardwell uh, and Von Hagen and Erickson went outside and they rubbed it all over. They said, hey, we're going to the bathroom quick while Steno was eating the big piece of prime rib. And they rubbed it all over his car windows. And they came back in and, you know, they were having dessert. Boardwell threw a glass of water in Steno's face. And they ran off and jumped into their car and took off to drive away. And Steno chased them. And, of course, he's not going to catch Von Hagen and, and Boardwell and Erickson. And Steno couldn't drive because his car was covered in, in butter on the windows. <laughs> and that was it. And, uh, I, you know, I know Boardwell, sometimes as you get older, you tell stories that might not be true, but I asked Von Hagen about it, and he goes, um, you know how like sheepish he is? He goes, yeah, that was true, and we did it. I listened to Boardwell, and I apologized to Stanley the next day. <laughs> I thought that was one of the best stories I ever heard from San Diego in one of your tournaments, George. So uh as much as i'm interviewing you it's for me to share a funny story about something that happened that boardwell and then von hagen confirmed so that's pretty classic this concludes part two of our three-part interview with san diego's own george stepanoff thanks so much for listening as a reminder we also have a website gods to ghosts.com g-o-d-s-t-o G-H-O-S-T-S dot com. And our podcasts are available on all the major podcast directories. Stay tuned for part three with George. It just gets better, including a 
incredible story about Nate Parrish and some of the shenanigans those San Diego guys got into back in the day. Thanks. Thanks.